This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture today is political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Gracho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, where do we begin today? I think we need to begin by looking to the fringes of Eastern Europe and to odd historical parallels, but also what is in many sense a very 21st century uh, problem in the sense that Russian troops have been massing on the borders of Ukraine. There is a question about the relevance and expansion of NATO and some rather unusual um, foreign policy decisions being taken by the UK government at this moment in time. Uh, what is seemingly a prime minister who's looking back to 19... Uh, 45, it seems, a defence secretary who's referenced events in 1938, and a foreign secretary who's walking around dressed like a prime minister from the late 80s at the moment. Yes. So, I mean, we're, we're, as we talk, nothing's actually happened beyond what's been happening for the last few weeks. Of course, the situation is quite fluid. Um, we have had some reports that some Russian troops are returning to barracks, but I guess we don't really know if that's true or not. Yes. Um, so Russia's defense ministry has insisted that some of its forces have returned to barracks after completion of what it's described as military exercises. However, a senior American official has instead disclosed that another 7,000 troops have arrived on NATO's border. So there are conflicting reports here. There have been bilateral discussions of hmm. numerous degrees of success taking place. Uh, the British Foreign Secretary, uh, Elizabeth Truss, was in Moscow the other week meeting with uh, Sergei Lavrov, uh, an encounter that did not, it's fair to say, have the warmest of rapports hmm. and uh, not the best of messages for uh, Truss, who's undoubtedly on manoeuvres. But, but he doesn't have rapport with anybody, doesn't he? Even though Obama um, is on record as saying how awful he is. It's it, true, but I think we have to recognise that Liz Truss went out there uh, presenting, not, not really in the mood mm. to talk, she went out there to dictate to the Russians. And I think we have to be aware that if you balance things out in Europe, it takes uh, Britain, France and Germany all fact, to be singing from the same hymn sheet as well. But that, yes, but that's certainly not what we're getting, is it? I mean, it, as the first test for the Western allies and NATO for some considerable time, you could hardly say that NATO is talking from the same hymn sheet, could you? I mean, it's, no. it's not even the same religion, the same hymn book. No, and I think we have to acknowledge that the UK's departure from the EU has weakened our ties with our continental partners, particularly France and Germany. Emmanuel Macron has found, I think, a more productive line of communication with uh, with Vladimir Putin. It's interesting at the start of the week, we had the foreign secretary saying that she believed an invasion of Ukraine was imminent. At the time we are recording this, that seems to have dialed down a bit, suggesting that the the, the formal channels for communication are still open. But crucially, the decision for this is, is still very much it's a, it's a geopolitical argument. So we've had Vladimir Zelensky, who is the uh, president of Ukraine, uh, reiterating his desire for his country to join the NATO defense bloc, which is something that Russia 
does not wish to allow and there's there's real questions about the degree to which this is just saber rattling or is this just are we going to be in a position where Vladimir Putin is pressed to invade in order to show he's not going to back down but it's an interesting negotiating tactic so you may actually sort of wonder given how disunited NATO is why any country would want to join NATO it's the, the relevance of NATO as an organisation, I think I think we have to, to look at this from the British perspective as well as a curious one, the fact that it was devised as a defensive block in, at the end of the, um, by the Labour government mm. in uh, the 1945 to 51 period, it was designed to be a defensive alliance against Soviet expansion in Europe as well, and also to be a key time block for keeping America into it as well. That is, I would argue, has been largely superseded by the economic, trading, and diplomatic relationships that are possible through the European Union as a bloc as well. And I think certainly looking to uh, America, the the UK can no longer have its sort of have its cake and eat it. Is the Johnson government wants to be being wanting to affirm mm. alliances like NATO, but also that have uh, best, I think, a questionable relevance to modern day diplomacy but distancing itself from other transnational groupings. Now, this doesn't just have to be the European Union, there's other frameworks happening as well. And to have Listrus uh, marching around Moscow dressed like the late Baroness Thatcher, clearly trying to channel for a domestic audience back home, which she should be paying more attention to her foreign brief, is something that mm. I would submit is probably not helpful. But then again, NATO is a counterbalance for countries in Eastern Europe who are wary of... Uh, Russian influence, particularly a country that we've seen this, you know, under uh, Vladimir Putin's tenure. We've seen it in Georgia. We've seen it in the annexation of Crimea. We've seen it in the disputed territories in the east of Ukraine. From a, from a purely military uh, standpoint, you could say that Russia is looking to create perhaps a common corridor with access to the coast between Crimea and the territories in Ukraine. It currently holds but the the language from the Ukrainian government is very much this. They see NATO as a, as a as a card to play to try and keep Russian influence at at at, at bay, as it were. Mm. And essentially, this is about a country like Russia, which knows that it is it is still militarily in the region a strong power. It is no longer one of the great world powers in terms of the economy. Its geographic and geopolitical influence over Europe is waning particularly in energy security as oil and gas reserves become scarcer. The Russian economy feels the pinch from sanctions far more than larger economies would do. And of course, at the top of this is a man, Vladimir Putin, who's been in charge of this country now for 20 years in one form or another as prime minister and uh, throughout three terms as president, who has built his entire image on restoring a strong sense of Russian identity, of uh, protecting Russia's position in the world. So everything that he's done in this is very in keeping with that line and, and trying to balance a domestic audience. What we are not seeing here is what's actually happening in terms of the international situation, in terms of this sort of legacy of the Cold War is also a proxy war, I'd argue, between mm. strongman politics that we see increasingly at play in all countries, whether it's the United States, Trumpism, all the way through to Putin or Xi Jinping in China, but also the willingness of countries to work together. And the most impactful message that came out of last year was probably the withdrawal from Afghanistan. American, uh, even under a democratic president, is now tending once again towards isolationism. And for many people, you know, the the the, the easiest way to draw a reference to this is, is to look back to the Second World War, because that, that's when they last saw a common cause with mm -hmm. Europe from a British perspective. Whereas if you're on continental Europe, 
there is that sense of connectedness i think through the just the geography of the region but even then it's it, it, there are other decisions at play for example in germany like the approval of the nord stream 2 pipeline which is mm. currently resting with Olaf schultz's government but at the moment the elder statesman on the western side is very much emmanuel macron here, since angela merkel has vacated the stage boris johnson carries no weight so the french president's having to carry the can for a lot of this as well it's a delicate situation and there is a real sense of urgency to find a diplomatic solution mm-hmm. but it's, you know, I, I would say that if Ukraine sticks to its um, insistence of wanting to join NATO, that's only going to ratchet up tensions even further. Yeah. And what about the relationship between Russia and China? You know, it does appear that they are becoming closer um, while the West is so disunited. The trouble is, is that we have lived through in the last 30, 40 years this uh, movement from a bipolar world to a unipolar world in terms of American hegemony. And now we're seeing almost a sense of reversion to the position of sort of the the earliest part of the 20th century, where where the US in particular wants to look to its own borders. But this this isn't just... Uh, happening in America, it's happening increasingly. You see it in France with the fact the far right and the Marine Le Pen gets uh, it will be undoubtedly be a strong force in this year's presidential election. <clears throat> seen it in the in in the United Kingdom in Brexit as well, which although and and arguably not just Brexit but the ill definition the government's been able to put to global Britain as well, because I would argue we haven't forged uh, international connections that have been as meaningful as the one that we lost to Brussels. I'm not saying that connection worked well or not, but we have certainly not been able to replace that vacuum yet. And that, that will arguably take some time to define. And we, to some extent, we, 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 our decisions are we either look to Europe or we look to America as we always have done. And we see this played out through a whole, whole series of things, particularly, for example, in the very totemic issue of fisheries negotiations with the European Union and uh, other countries like Norway. Do we go down the Norway route? Do we pursue a, a, a part where we have forged, straight, uh, constructed bilateral frameworks with each neighbour that suit us? But that, these take time and room to carve out. So whilst Britain is looking for a new sense of place in the world with an ill-defined sense of global Britain. France is very much looking to preserve the peace and sanctity in Europe. Um, Germany is very much under a new government, has to try and balance domestic political interests as well. We are once again left with the fact that this is essentially about the waning influence of Western liberal democracies against a type of strongman politics. The common fact that both sides have is that the appeal to put up the drawbridge, as it were, to look to our own boards and own affairs and to play to the domestic audience has never arguably been stronger. And does it matter that Russia and China seem to be drawing closer together? And and an attendant question. I mean, how seriously should we take the government uh, assertions that these these strong men who quite often, um, whether they be rulers of the country or just corrupt businessmen, are sheltering um, uh, corrupt money in London. I mean, that surely is something that the governments have been talking about, trying to do something about this for, for years, not just years, probably decades, but nothing ever really happens. Absolutely. It? London's property market, especially, and the city are perfect environments for this money to come through. If you walk around large parts, say, of Kensington, Chelsea, you know, there's famously an article from a few years ago in the Evening Standard, which talked about the number of empty homes there that mm-hmm. have as well. 
there's a strong case, I think, for curtailing foreign ownership of property in this country, certainly where it's not a, a main residence or yes. not lived in at least half the year if it's just held. You know, it doesn't help the fact that there are plenty of investment opportunities in London's property market for this as well. Lots of high-rise flats greenlit by the former mayor of London, Boris Johnson, now prime minister, that have gone ahead and they're being put up particularly uh, near where I'm talking to you from on Millbank in Westminster. Lots of high-rise buildings go up on the south of the river there. These flats that intrinsically have value. But so that's something that the, the government could do as well, as opposed to talking tough. The the question about Russia and China is an interesting one because one's very much on the wane and the other's very much on the rise. But both, um, I mean, Vladimir Putin's arguably the original proponent of strongman politics, and Russia is the the most totemic example of how the the triumph of liberal democracy that Francis Fukuyama famously talked about at the end of history in the last man in 1989 mm. has failed. Russia was a liberal democracy ostensibly that it's moved toward authoritarianism. China is the biggest challenge to it though, because that is a country that has had a massively booming economy, has had economic liberalism that's benefited a you know, hundreds of um, millions of people who have had their living standards raised. But the political liberalism has not followed with that. And political liberalism is arguably now going out of vogue. And I can commend anyone to go away and look at the Louis Through documentary on BBC iPlayer um, the, about the, 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 the rise of the, the online far right in America to, to really realise how much of a threat this kind of anti-democratic values and proponent of authoritarianism is running through all major Western democracies right now. Oh, well, on that cheerful note, <laughs> let's take a quick, a quick pause for a breath, Mike. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio when I'm in conversation with Mike Indian. Um, author of the Groucho Tennessee blog. So where, where should we go now, Mike? I think we have to turn away from the international stage and look to what's happening a bit closer to home. There's been a lot of stuff happening uh, around and about that I think, although doesn't carry the weight of international affairs, is something that we should look to. And I think we have to look at the common theme among this is going to be words that are being spoken. And particularly in this, we're going to be looking at words spoken by uh past and current members of the Conservative Party at the moment as well, and about this government's actions and consequences and major achievements. So uh, just to touch on briefly, uh, the Jacob Rees-Mogg the government reshuffle has been made Brexit Opportunities uh, Minister, which is essentially he's the government's new kind of cheerleader for a post-Brexit deal. The uh, He's insisted that there has been uh, the, the drops in UK exports, particularly to continental Europe and the European Union trading bloc, have not been caused by Brexit. These are to do with COVID. But the government's independent uh, fiscal watchdogs, the OBR, Office of Budget Responsibility, has indicated there is a Brexit impact to trade. And don't forget, it's a commonly agreed theme, particularly from the Independent uh, Institute of Fiscal Studies, the Bank of England, most reputable sources, the London School of Economics, all agree that in the long term, there is a permanent loss of about 4% of GDP that's occurred to the economy 
due to our departure from the European Union. And this comes on the back of the Public Accounts Committee uh, saying that trade had been suppressed with the EU since we cut formal ties last January. We're just over a year since the Trade and Cooperation Agreement came into effect. And official statistics have shown that UK exports to the EU in the first 10 months of 2021 were down 12% on pre-pandemic levels. And UK imports for the EU were 20% lower than before the pandemic. And this is arguably felt nowhere more keenly so than in Northern Ireland, and where the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol is going to be a hot potato issue, particularly for, uh, we have to acknowledge that there's an, probably an early election coming that way uh, for the executive, the DUP agriculture minister, um, Edwin Poots chose to make a political move by uh, choosing to suspend checks on goods coming into Northern Ireland from the EU. But also there was the fact that the, the outgoing First Minister, Paul Gervin, resigned over the issues while effectively paralysing that decision. Now that's one part of the country. We've become quite used to the idea of supply chain uh, paralysis over the last year or so, particularly mm. given it's become something that, you know, lots of people have been working from home. So COVID in a sense has made it harder to discern whether it's Brexit. The, 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 the honest truth is it's probably a bit of both, but there is a considerable gap. And this in many ways has worked to the government's advantage. They could say, look, you know, that COVID caused you know, the deepest recession in 300 years. You know, Brexit's actually, if it wasn't for this Brexit, would have been a great success. And expect this line to be advanced throughout the the coming years. D- decades from now, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson, anybody who campaigned for the kind of Brexit that this government delivered will say that actually it was COVID that dampened the benefits of it. Now, if, if it hadn't been for that, then actually the... Uh, then it would have been a great success. Um, and it's all very well pointing to research like that from the Centre for European Reform think tank that concluded uh, our trade of the EU had been around £12.6 billion pounds lower uh, than it, because of Brexit. And this is in goods mainly as well. And, it, and suffice to say, that I've, I've made this point to you many times before, Simon, but it's worth saying again, the trade and cooperation agreement was rushed through. It, even if we'd have gone for Theresa Mesley, we wouldn't have had the key decisions on services, on areas like mm. equivalents uh, for products, which basically means they could be successfully passported over to what's the largest service market as well. A quarter of our economy is services, um, whereas there's a, yeah, a bit of a larger focus on arguably more niche issues like fishing, as well. And obviously, fishing is very important to certain communities around the country. It's a very totemic issue as well. But we will be going backwards and forwards for years. And the trouble is, and I had this a bit before Christmas as well, when I, I was doing a, another radio interview, and I quoted the, the, G, the 4% GDP hit. Someone came on and said, look, you, know, you hate Brexit because you're quoting this statistic. And that, Michael Goveline, we don't trust experts, is still playing out today as well. So it's a sense that it's going to be very hard to unpick things. For people closer to the way to, who read the reports, they will probably will see an impact and that Brexit definitely has contributed to some of the, the issues we've had in supply chain mm-hmm. uh, problems, particularly with their relation to our biggest trading partner. What is incumbent upon the government to do now is, as Labour been urging them to do, to make Brexit work, which means looking to improve and build on the trade agreement it already has, particularly with the EU, get that trade agreement with the US as well, and recognise that if the UK is going to be uh, finding its feet in the wood. It may take a while for the benefits to be shown. Well, the one thing it is completely disingenuous for Jacob Rees-Mogg to say is that Brexit is already a huge success. It's an evolving fact. It is uh, neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so, to quote Shakespeare. 
Okay. Thank you, Mike. Let's take another a breather just for a moment. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation, as I am every fortnight, with uh, political commentator Mike Indian. So you were talking about words. Whose words are we going for next? Well, we need to talk about Boris Johnson. And uh, we have to be very careful here about what we say, because uh, words have power. And it's unusual for parliamentarians, because words in parliament have more power than most. And it's not just because everything you say in parliament is preserved for posterity in the annals of Handside, but also MPs have rather unusual protection and democracy that parliamentary privilege exists and for those people who aren't sure what that is it's basically the parliamentary the idea is to protect freedom of speech the parliamentarians can say what they they need to say in parliament without fear of being say sued for libel for example so it means they can name people in court cases it's been used uh, quite controversially but it's seen as one well of the ancient freedoms of of parliament and uh, the trouble is is that it often is misused by people and during a speak uh, a statement responding to the update of the suit gray report and i'm deliberately keeping away from that at the moment because i think there's probably more to come out for that yeah. later on once we have the full report and certainly the, we could talk about the resignation of Cressida dick and all that but i think that's still largely unknown until we know the findings of the police inquiry but we I think we have to look at how boris johnson reacted to it and it, it's widely understood that during his response in the commons to the sugar report in which he's trying to strike an emollient tone in which the number of mps calling for his resignation had ticked up very slowly the number of letters could be anywhere between 30 to 45 letters now some people have estimated jacob rees-mogg him again whispered to boris johnson he should repeat uh, what is known to be a categorical untruth about a, a, an alleged role that Keir Starmer played in the decision not to prosecute uh, the late disgraced entertainer Jimmy Savile. There is no basis for this. Many people involved in the decision, although Sir Keir did head up the CPS at the time, he was not involved in the decision not to prosecute Jimmy Savile. And those close to him said that he had no role in it at all. It was a decision taken by junior staff and essentially moved on mm. uh, whilst it was under, under his watch but there was no role in which he played in that certainly he did not actively discourage any prosecution from taking place the prime minister chose to repeat this falsehood in parliament knowing that he can be protected from saying it when he was asked to repeat it in public he's gradually walked it back the political damage to his inner circle has been substantial so he ended up losing in that same week uh, as was widely expected, uh, his chief of staff, his main civil service aide, and the um, director of communications at number 10, but also Dr. Manira Meza, who is his longest serving and most loyal aide, his head of policy, someone he wants to describe as one of the most important women in his life, left and cited the several remarks as the reason for her departure. We've seen a major restructuring of Downing Street on the back of that. Uh, ministers brought in to be the chief of staff and the head of policy as well. So that's Steve Barclay. Uh, he's heading up the new office of the prime minister. There's going to be a new permanent secretary under Dr. Emily Lawson, who's a respected sort of fixer within the NHS. So there's going to be a more formal department in Downing mm. Street than there is at the moment, because essentially at the moment it's a large private office. But most interestingly is that the most troubling thing is that the week after the remarks were made, uh, Keir Starmer and his shadow foreign secretary, David Lammy, who full disclosure was uh, an ex-constituency MP of mine, somebody I've got a very high regard for, 
were accosted by some protesters outside Parliament repeating these untruths that Boris Johnson had uh, meant in Parliament. Now, uh, people on one side have been flippant and said the Prime Minister didn't cite these remarks. He didn't, but he gave oxygen to them. There was a difference, I would argue, between somebody repeating these in the darkest corners of the internet and somebody standing up in the elected chamber of a British parliamentary democracy and accusing his main political opponent of something which is widely known to be untrue in a context in which he... So there's an element of cowardice there, I would argue. There's an element of um, political calculation and weakness that's even cost tested the loyalty of Johnson's most trusted and valued aide, someone who's been with him for years and is uh, a key thinker. He has worked on some very controversial things, including the racial uh, discrimination report, the, uh, the Sewell Commission report that came back that Dr. Miramez was very keenly involved in that. But for her to break with Johnson in this way is one of the most damaging blows, and arguably for one in which he will never recover. Essentially now, Johnson's everything Johnson does between here and whenever he leaves office, whether it's in eight years' time, in eight days' time, in 80 days' time, he's going to be he's going to mean he's on the defensive mm. going to mean that he's essentially looking over his shoulder because he's had to lose he's lost somebody who has stuck through with him through thick and thin and um it's very much the the winston churchill quote of this being um the end of the beginning so we can we can, we can date we can date the johnson premiership the decline of the johnson premiership to the exact point that manira Mirza gave her letter to the spectator yeah. saying this is why i'm leaving you've gone too far Last time we spoke, you were talking about how the May local elections were probably the moment we saw <clears throat> whether all this was going to happen quickly or, or badly. So we're talking about rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic century, aren't we? Are there any positives from the this reorganisation in Downing Street? Much of it, I suspect, will be lost on the general electorate anyway. Well, let's, let's, let's start off by acknowledging that we're not going to see a massive shift in culture in Downing Street. We are seeing a prime minister's on the defensive. He's trying to placate his backbenchers, hence why... Um, he's basically increased the number of PPSs he has. That's the ministerial aides from two to three. Two of those are from the 2019 intake. He's made another one of them the head of his policy unit. That's Andrew Griffith, MP. Steve Barclay is uh, now doing running the cabinet office. He's an MP and he's also the Downing Street chief of staff, which is a full-time job for his predecessor, Dan Rosenfeld, who has left. I would say the most meaningful thing that could come out of this is longer term is the idea that the Downing Street becomes in its own right a, a government department rather than a, a, an enhanced private office. It's, it's a very confined space. People talk about how the, the, the building itself is shaped. The incumbents, unlike, say, the Treasury, the Prime Minister has a comparatively small pool of people to put to, to call upon. Hmm. So much that, bigger than it used to be, isn't it? The it has, keeps it getting has, bigger. It has grown. But bear in mind that if we look, say, for example, to equivalent posts in France, in Germany, the German Chancellery is a huge department in its own right, working to um, the leader of Europe's biggest economy. Uh, the cabinet office is ostensibly there to support the prime minister, but the prime minister arguably needs a greater deal of support around us. And this is an issue of, I think, resourcing that runs throughout our politics as well. Obviously, the if you're the chancellor, you've got an entire civil service uh, department, the most important department in government to call upon. If you're a prime minister, basically you have maybe an advisor on foreign affairs, you'll have a few political appointees, but you're constrained by the size of the building you work in, and also by the fact that Downing Street is essentially just a large expanded private office, which most ministers have as a matter of mm. course anyway. Most ministers have a department and a private office. The prime minister has a private office and a quasi 
underfunded, I would say, understaffed departmental structure. For the head of government, that's quite a thing to be uh, struggling against. Mm. Um, And I think the last set of words we want to um, talk about are are, uh, John Major's former um, prime minister who weighed in the other day. The rehabilitation of John Major's political image under this tenure uh, of this Conservative government has been nothing short of remarkable. Really. Now, obviously, part of this is to do with the fact that he is the most uh, senior living uh, uh, British Prime Minister at this point in time. Uh, the others are still in Parliament. The others are comparatively young compared to him. Uh, John Major's government, not one renowned for success, but he's also somebody who belongs to a very different tradition of Conservatism that has come into play uh, than, than, than arguably the Euroscepticism that began under David Cameron and then the, the populist nationalism that's grown under First May, then Johnson. But John Major is also somebody whose own government was brought down partly by time, but also partly by the allegations of sleaze that was the big issue that Labour, New Labour made it in the 90s. And he has delivered a speech to the Institute for Government Think Tank, a a non-party political think tank, in which he said if Boris Johnson did break the law, and he believes he did, then he would have to resign. And the excoriation of Boris Johnson by his predecessors as Conservative Party leaders and and Prime Ministers is nothing new. He's somehow managed to put um, everybody off the, everybody on the wrong side Mm. of the argument. Uh, for himself uh, on many issues, not least of all, say, the National Security Advisor too. But now we're starting to see, and we talked about 10 Downing Street here, and I think this is, this. I don't, I think this is something that isn't just a Westminster conversation, it's, it's, it damaged the integrity of the office of Prime Minister as well, because Boris Johnson occupies what is the most iconic symbol of British politics. He has that black door of number 10 behind him. It's, it's, it's something that's famous all over the world, for, even for people who don't follow our politics closely, aren't really interested in it at home and abroad. They know Downing Street, they know that symbol, they know what that building represents, they know it is the seat of British government. Boris Johnson's erosion of that, the actions that took place, did it. in a sense, they, they are both trivial and consequential at the same time. Trivial in the sense that, yes, we're talking about parties and bottles of champagne, but consequential in the same that Boris Johnson has made a career out of going through his life and not accepting responsibility for things that he has done, whether it be remarks he's made. And it's only comparatively recently, arguably in the last six months or so, maybe even the last three months, he's actually had his feet held to the fire for the first time on this too. But in doing so, he's taught the Conservative Party, I would say, to tolerate this behaviour. And John Major is actually reminding them, and a lot of Conservative MPs who do share this view, and the ones who've spoken out are Johnson's critics, who are, they would probably see themselves as the more publicly service-spirited minded members of the Tory party, the less one, the ones who, whether they agree with John Major on Europe or not, believe in a, a more, in the importance of preserving tradition, more so than just winning elections. John Major's remarks are a reminder to Boris Johnson that a large chunk of the Conservative Party do think the way John Major does, but also the country does as well. And whilst I wouldn't expect Johnson's supporters to take John Major's words seriously, they are a reminder of the fact that these labels that end up sticking to leaders, whether it was sleeves to John Major, it was Iraq to Tony Blair, it was weakness to Gordon Brown. For Cameron, it was poshness in the referendum. For May, it was constant undermining. For Johnson, it's going to be again his personal integrity, and that becomes more and more of an issue going on. No matter however long he's Prime Minister, he will never quite be as strong as he was 
for the last two years because yeah. more and more people have come out and said and, and named him for what he is, which is somebody of very suspect morals and an incredibly um, lapsed view of what the consequences of his actions are. Mike, thank you very much indeed. That's uh, a conversation with Mike Indian, a political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike will be back with me in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.